Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin in the observation room for the court at the University of Ottawa Law School. And I'm here, of course, with my co-host, Craig Forces, as well as Tomas Junot, who's agreed to come back and to talk to us about Iran. So I thought what we could do today is I'll play the uh, role of the curious interviewer. And uh, Craig is going to speak to some of the international law aspects of the whole Iran issue. And Tomas, you're going to speak to us about... Uh, What's up with Iran? Yeah, so this is one of our regional-focused podcasts. We've been slowly but surely adding more podcasts dealing with foreign policy issues uh, that involve various regions of the world. And, Tama, you were uh, back by popular demand last time and by even more popular demand this time. And so it's really great to have you here to focus on Iran, which has been much in the news uh, for the wrong reasons, frankly, over the last little while. And you've been very active on Twitter, uh, having all sorts of uh, Twitter disputes with uh, with folks uh, who were once uh, part of organizations that were listed terrorist groups in Canada. <laughs> I think hashtag shame on Tom, as you know, was almost trending, but not quite. It's, it's always a good way to study these people. <laughs> right. Um, but that speaks to really a kind of point, which is like Iran is such a difficult political issue to have a kind of a sensible, normal conversation about. So that's what we're kind of aiming uh, for today, particularly since there's so much going on in the region as we tape this. It is, I should note, uh, July 19th. Uh, so I think we're going to be posting this in, in a, a couple days later. Right. So, so uh, just at the end there, of the month, yeah. there could have been a war. Uh, that that's a possibility, but unless that's happened, uh, hopefully, we're, so we'll, we'll be speaking of two events as of today. Um, so what I really want to talk about is just kind of the current context, but situate it within you know Canada's recent history with Iran um, and, and how that's kind of influencing uh, some of our policies. I think right now, what the Trump administration has been doing, and then finally the kind of current situation where there has been uh, a series of of incidents and skirmishes that um, I think there's some concerned that this could actually build up into something uh, more serious. So uh, to start off, um, you know, Canada, we broke off relations with Iran in 2012. But Tama, what were relations like between Canada and Iran before that decision was taken? You know, relations between Canada and Iran uh, over the decades before 2012 were never very important for either country, right? That's always a very important point to keep in mind. We're marginal to the interests of the other. Uh, before the revolution in 1979, Canada and the Shah's Iran had more or less positive relations, but quite marginal, quite superficial. From 1979 to the early 2000s, uh, relations were obviously more difficult. Uh, during the 1980s, we didn't have an embassy in Iran. We closed it down after the revolution, including after, you know, Canadian diplomats helped uh, American diplomats uh, get exfiltrated out of Iran at I the time of the hostage ben crisis. Affleck. He was there too. Right. Yeah. And uh, we reopened embassies in the 1990s. Uh, relations were difficult. They were limited uh, at the same time. We didn't have a lot of trade, very few exchanges. Uh, but then a key moment comes in 2003 when Zahra Kazemi, who is a dual citizen, Canadian-Iranian, uh, gets tortured to death uh, in an Iranian prison. Um, the Paul Martin government at the time takes quite a hard line, uh, resists the temptation to actually uh, close down the embassy, but uh, decides to really reduce uh, relations by adopting what was called the controlled engagement policy, whereby we would only talk to Iran about a small number of issues, consular cases, human rights, eventually the nuclear program. 2006 comes, the Harper government comes in, and then the, the, the conservatives uh, accentuate the trend that was already started under Paul Martin, which is to take a harder line on Iran and to tilt closer to Israel. So then from 2006 to 12, you really see the conservatives take an increasingly tough position on Iran. Uh, they sponsor resolutions at the UN to criticize Iran on human rights. Uh, they start taking a very harsh position on the issue of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, at some point after the Obama administration comes in, you have the slightly absurd situation where Canada is taking a harder line on Iran than than the Americans are. Mm. Uh, and all that eventually brings us to 2012. Right. So why did the Harper government break off relations in 2012? So in 2012, uh, a lot of things happened throughout the year that are really the culmination of events that had been happening in the previous six years of, of conservative government. The, the, the government initially, earlier in 2012, had adopted a law called the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act, and maybe Craig, Craig can jump in to, to talk a bit about that at the same time, uh, that really uh, marks a key shift in, in, in our relations, and that ends up, and we can, we can dive into that in more detail after, but uh, that ends up in September of that year with Canada uh, bringing its uh, staff back from Tehran and then expelling uh, all Iranian diplomats from Ottawa um, and, and formally uh, closing embassies in, in both countries. 
why did the conservatives take that decision? Uh, for a uh, research project that I did over the last couple of years, I interviewed more than 20 people involved on the bureaucratic side, on the political side, on the diaspora side, uh, to try to really piece all of that story together. Um, a, there's a very ideological element. Uh, the Harper government, starting with the prime minister himself, genuinely believed that it was the right thing to do. And this was not a political calculus. Uh, this was really a strategic and moral calculus he was making. It was right to be very close to Israel and very uh, hostile towards Iran. Um, was there an electoral calculus? A bit, uh, but it really shouldn't be overemphasized. The, the conservatives did try with some success to siphon off a few votes in the Iranian diaspora community from the liberals. Very hard to quantify. Nobody's really measured that precisely, but they probably did win a few. Um, and, and, you know, if you broaden that discussion a bit with their overall Middle East policy of being very close to Israel, there was a bit of a shift in, in, in the Jewish vote towards uh, the conservatives. Not a big one, but a small one. Uh, so all of these pieces come together a bit. There was probably also a security one in the sense that the Canadian embassy in, in Tehran, uh, especially in the last few years before 2012, really had to operate under very difficult circumstances. And I interviewed some of the people involved uh, around that the harassment by Iranian security services was very intense. Uh, their access was severely limited. It was very difficult to, for them to get official meetings in Iran, which at some point doesn't make an embassy useless, but does make your life less productive. Uh, so if you add all of that together, you more or less have a set of reasons why, why it happened. Okay, right. So, you know, you mentioned the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act. Craig, do you want to come in and talk a bit about that and, and what that actually did? Yeah, so there are two features of that act that probably stand out, uh, both of them probably impairing our relations with Iran and making it difficult for us to restore relations if we wish to go that way. We emulated essentially with this act what the Americans have been doing for some time, which is to allow those who had been victimized by state sponsors of terrorism to bring civil actions against assets that had been seized from that state that were within the purview in the American context of, of American courts. And there were considerable Iranian assets and have been considerable Iranian assets within uh, the American, uh, available to the American judicial system because of the depth of the ties prior to the revolution in 79. Uh, in the Canadian context, of course, there aren't the same asset base. Um, and most of the property that Iran had in Canada was actually associated with this diplomatic mission. And so uh, the issue in Canada has been in part, what does this new law mean in terms of the assets against which you can bring an action to seize Iranian property? So the two features of the act are that you can bring a civil action against a state sponsor of terrorism, and that includes parties who have received judgment in a foreign court being able to enforce that judgment within Canada. And that means in practice, Americans who have won court judgments in the United States now trying to enforce those judgments in Canadian court against Iranian assets. So that's the first aspect. And the second aspect is that there is no bar in terms of what's known as state immunity because the, the same statute amended the State Immunity Act. Now, state immunity is a bit of a complex concept in public international law, but the bottom line is that it's a violation of international law for the courts of one state to adjudicate on the conduct of another state because they're co-equal sovereigns. And so it simply has not been acceptable for the institutions of one state to opine on the conduct in a judicial form of, of another state. There are exceptions to the principle of state immunity. And so certain commercial transactions, we've talked a lot in this uh, podcast about state-owned enterprises. State-owned enterprises may be state-owned, but they're not entitled to state immunity for their commercial transactions. We're not, though, talking in this context about state-owned Iranian enterprises. We're talking about the state of Iran. And so by relaxing the concept of state immunity vis-a-vis -vis Iran, we have effectively breached public international law. Uh, in fact, there's no cogent argument to suggest that state sponsorship of terrorism constitutes a justification for suspending state immunity rules in public international law. So our statute really is non-compliant with public international law. So so could Iran take us to the, um, like, the Hague? Yes, well, in not, well, it could, in principle, take us to the International Court of Justice if it could secure a basis for the International Court of Justice to have jurisdiction in such a dispute, and that would be almost impossible. In fact, it would be impossible because you, you, you need essentially uh, either we agree that we will be sued or there's an existing treaty relationship between us which allows, for the purposes of that treaty, disputes to be adjudicated in front of the International Court ah, of Justice. Ah, that's interesting. Okay. And that's, by the way, as an aside, that's why the U.S. and Iran have a lot of cases that have ended up in the ICJ. Until recently, there's actually been a treaty relationship between Iran 
and the United States dating from 1955 called the Treaty of Amity yep. that gave jurisdiction to the ICJ in the event that there was a dispute under that treaty, and that treaty is very broadly closed and, and has been the basis for a number of, of cases, including, by the way, the Tehran hostage-taking case. In part, the jurisdictional basis for the ICJ in that matter was this Treaty of Amity. We don't have anything similar. So there's not really any basis for Iran to take us in front of the International Court of Justice. Of course, there are consequences, though. If we're in noncompliance with international law, there's a reciprocity issue here. One of the reasons why state immunity is usually observed by other states is because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so presumably Iran could turn and say, well, as a countermeasure, we are now going to enforce Iranian judgments against Canadian assets were they to exist or take some other countermeasure in international law which would be perfectly lawful because it's proportional to what you've done to us in terms of uh, suspending uh, state immunity. The way it's worked in practice in Canada, there have been Americans who have come here, plaintiffs in American cases. They have successfully persuaded both the Superior Court in Ontario and then the Court of Appeal in Ontario to enforce their judgments against Iranian assets. And about a year, just over a year ago, the Supreme Court denied leave in those cases. And so they're final now at the Ontario Court of Appeal level. Uh, the issue really is then what kind of assets are available. There are some assets, my understanding is, that are uh, Iranian assets not tied to its diplomatic mission. Now, to be clear, a diplomatic mission, we no longer have diplomatic relationships with Iran, but once a diplomatic mission and subject to diplomatic immunity, always subject to diplomatic immunity. The fact that you rupture your diplomatic relations doesn't then mean that uh, the uh, diplomatic assets are suddenly no longer closed so with diplomatic immunity. Really interesting. So, so like so the diplomatic uh, immunity and state immunity are different things, right? Right. So, yeah. That's interesting. So, like for example, the former residence of the Iranian ambassador, yeah. we couldn't expropriate that. Really? No. So it's just kind of sitting there. Yeah. Closed. If up. we did, we would violate public international law, right? And so the Iranians would turn around and say, "What? Well, when did they put it on Airbnb?" <laughs> Would that, no, seriously, like, what happens if they tried to rent it out? Like, could they? Well, then you're, I, you know, so, um, good question. I'd have to think about There's that. There's got to be a sanction that would prevent Airbnb from, yeah, from doing that. So <laughs> I'm sure there would be a sanction. The revenue from Airbnb in terms of the way it's used, is that revenue itself closed in diplomatic com, uh, immunity and, and subject to, to not being seized? Probably not. Right. And so you could probably seize the, from Airbnb, the revenue generated, put it in the pot, allow plaintiffs to collect against it. The, the bottom line is that we have this sort of complicated relationship legally now because of, of this infrastructure, the statutory infrastructure. The last point I'll make on this is there are the, the way it works in terms of suspending state immunity, it, it, the governor and council, the federal cabinet, makes the decision as to which state is a state sponsor of terrorism and will have suspended state immunity. There are only two states on that list, Syria and Iran. But the act says that if a subsequent governor and council, a subsequent government, were to uh, strike a given state from that list, the state immunity does not snap back and ongoing proceedings can persist in Canadian courts. And so if we were to cancel the listing of Iran as a state sponsor of terrorism under the act, that doesn't then suspend whatever judicial proceedings or enforcement proceedings are underway. And so it's sort of a one-way ratchet. So, I mean, Tobai, you've described the uh, Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act as kind of a, a, a booby trap. I mean, it, it sounds bad to say, but effectively, the way that all of this was done was done in such a way that it makes it almost impossible for a future government to actually take Iran off that list. Exactly. And and that was the point. And, right. and I interviewed a lot of people on the bureaucracy side, uh, but also on the conservative side who were involved in the drafting of the JVTA and the development of Iran policy up to 2012 and after that. And it is very clear, it is not a coincidence at all, it was purposefully the intent of the GVTA to tie the hands of future governments. One reason being what Craig just explained in terms of allowing these cases to continue afterwards. Um, I called it a booby trap in the sense that the point was to sabotage uh, future efforts to reopen embassies and to reestablish diplomatic relations. Uh, so this is what happened when the, the Liberals came to power in 2015. Uh, it was one of their camp campaign pledges as part of all the efforts of Canada is back, re-engaging with multilateral institutions, UN peace operations, and so on. One of those pledges was reopening embassies with Iran. Um, is it because the Liberals really wanted to focus on Iran significantly? No, not really, but it was more an issue of differentiating 
alienating themselves politically from what the conservatives had done. Um, throughout 2016 and 2017, the liberals genuinely tried. Uh, some people criticized them for only having uh, faked it or having you know done only facade efforts. No, no, that's not true. There were real efforts on the government side to reopen embassies, uh, and they were not able to do that. Uh, these efforts fizzled out in 2018, and they've been pretty much frozen for over a year now. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. The JVTA is one of them. It's arguably the most important of them in the sense that the liberals, uh, the government, simply couldn't figure out how to reopen embassies given the consequences of the JVTA. Um, basically, at the beginning of the process, there was a fork in the road. Do you keep Iran listed as a state sponsor of terrorism or do you remove it from the list? Um, keeping it listed was highly problematic because then you're basically telling Iran, we want to re-engage with you, but we are still considering you a state sponsor of terrorism the same way that the predecessor government did. Politically for Iran, and Iran may not be a democracy, but they still have their own domestic politics. This was not an appealing scenario. The Iranians were hoping that we would delist them. Um, that proved too complicated politically. Uh, logistically, delisting a state is not very complicated. It's an order in council. Bureaucratically, it's a relatively straightforward process. Uh, politically, you can't do that in the sense that too much for political capital to, for the liberal government to have delisted Iran would have meant we are saying that Iran is not a state sponsor of terrorism. A factually, that is incorrect because Iran effectively sponsors Hamas, Hezbollah groups that are listed as terrorist entities in Canada. So it would have been factually incorrect to, to delist them. But at the same time, politically, you can't do that, right? You are soft on terrorism. The conservatives will be all over you. Factions within the liberal party would be all over you. That was not an option. So then the other fork in the road was, okay, so how do we reopen embassies with the Islamic Republic, given that we are still listing them as state sponsors of terrors, terrorism, and that as such, Canadian courts can seize Iranian government, not diplomatic assets, in Canada as per the process that Craig just explained. Um, that's very difficult, but diplomats are creative people, and they're paid uh, to try to figure out uh, compromises around that. And the compromise that was being worked out in 2017 was for each country to open interest sections in each other's country. The thing with an interest section is that, A, politically, it's less visible or less prominent than embassies, so it's a bit more acceptable domestically for the liberals to do it. But the other thing is that when you open an interest section in another country, and maybe Craig can explain the legalities of that more precisely, but in a nutshell, what it means is that the assets that you use to operate your interest section in another country are under the authority of a protective power and not under your own authority. So Oman would have been Iran's protective power in Ottawa. So Iranian assets, cars, bank accounts, things like that, that it would have needed to operate its diplomatic assets, the embassy and the residence, uh, would have been under Iran uh, Omani. Uh, authority and therefore shielded from uh, Canadian courts seizing them under the JVTA. Oman had agreed to do that. Oman doesn't have an embassy in Ottawa, but it has one in Washington, would have done it from there. The problem, however, is that, and that was agreed in principle, the problem is that no country agreed to be Canada's protective power in Tehran. Uh, currently, Italy is our protective power, um, which is a kind of a minimal role, but Italy was not interested in expanding its role as a protective power to include an interest section. Officially, they were saying that they didn't have the space, which was technically accurate, but in practice, they probably also didn't want the trouble uh, because there would have been a lot of consular cases and so on. Uh, so other opportunities or avenues were explored. None of them worked out. So by late 2017, uh, we were in the situation where discussions were kind of getting bogged down because a theoretical compromise was identified, interest sections which allowed to dance around the restrictions of the JVTA. We found the protective power for Iran here, Oman. We couldn't find one for Canada over there. These efforts kind of were getting bogged down. Um, another, a number of other factors came in after that. A, the reality that this was not a priority for either country. Uh, in 2016, it was easier for both countries to really focus on this. Post-JCPOA, Obama was still president. Post-nuclear deal, I mean. Um, on the Iranian side, they were quite keen, but then Trump gets elected in late, late 2016. Our own foreign policy agenda really shifts in another direction. It becomes more difficult to focus energies here. On the Iranian side, same thing. Um, for which there really isn't a ton at stake. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So for both countries to really spend political capital was not, there was no cost-benefit calculus that could justify that. A second factor that started really freezing discussions was consular cases. Um, we mentioned the Zahra Kazemi case from almost 15 years ago, over 15 years ago now. Um, 
same thing. In 2016, Huma Hudfar, a Concordia University professor, gets jailed for a few months. She ends up being released after Omani mediation, uh, but that sucks a bit of goodwill uh, out of the Canadian side. And then in early 2018, a Canadian-Iranian dual citizen, a professor, Kavu Sayed Imami, is killed again in Iranian prison, probably tortured to death. Uh, his wife uh, is prevented from leaving Iran. She's still, as we speak today, under de facto house arrest. Um, that really annoys the Canadian side. And politically, again, that's where the politics of re-engaging with Iran become really complicated because on the Canadian side, politically, for any government, but especially a government that brands itself as progressive and feminist, to be seen as spending political capital engaging with the Islamic Republic that it has just tortured to death a Canadian citizen in jail or Canadian-Iranian citizen, politically, that's really complicated. And they were being attacked more and more by the conservatives. On top of that, the last reason that comes in is that within the Liberal Party, opposition to re-engagement with Iran, which was there from the beginning, but was becoming mobilized, in part because of consular cases, in part because of what was going on in, with the U.S., where President Trump was mobilizing a lot of anti-Iran uh, energies. Uh, so by, by early, mid-2018, you really had significant opposition within the Liberal caucus uh, to re-engagement efforts. So, uh, Craig, what are the legalities here of, of some of the plans that, you know, perhaps didn't come to fruition or, like, you know, some of the ideas that have been put forward that Tomah just talked about? Well, well, so there's no obligation for states to have diplomatic relations one with the other. First of all, there are principles of public international law that do apply, like the Vienna Convention of uh, Diplomatic Relations. But beyond those sort of gen generic requirements, there's really it depends on the, on the political importance that states put in terms of developing those relations. And so it would have been perfectly legitimate, uh, as best as I understand it, for Iran, for example, to operate under the auspices of Oman, clothed derivatively in Oman's diplomatic inviolability, right, in terms of diplomatic immunities. Uh, that didn't happen for political reasons. The rupture of diplomatic relations, if we decided to back as we did in 2012 to close down the embassy again, um, there's no legal impediment to that. Technically, one would call that probably a form of retorsion, which is a lawful step taken by a state in its international relations to express displeasure in the conduct of another state. And there's there's no impediment in terms of uh, shutting down the diplomatic relations. I, I, you know, just to pick up on this idea, though, of, of consular protection, of, of uh, actually, ironically, it's, it's called diplomatic protection of nationals. And so we do have a fair number. We're a, a very diverse state and a settler state in the sense that we have people from all around the world who naturalized to Canadian citizenship. Uh, many of them uh, have origins in countries that do not recognize dual nationality. And some of them come from states that make it impossible, essentially, for people to renounce their original nationality. Iran's policy, as best I know, and I don't think it's changed since 2003, is that if you are an Iranian national the fact that you have a dual nationality is irrelevant, and if you enter Iran, you have to enter Iran on an Iranian passport. The issue then becomes, should you run into trouble with Iranian authorities, what capacity and competency, even if we had diplomatic relations with Iran, would a Canadian diplomat have in terms of extending to you consular assistance? Uh, and so in Kazemi, there was an effort to provide consular assistance. It was belated because the Iranians were not cooperating. And one of the reasons why they were not cooperating is that they take the view that, first of all, Kazemi was an Iranian and not a Canadian, and international law in this space where you have dual nationality is incredibly ambiguous. And so there is some uncertainty as to when you have a dual national, whether one state of nationality can offer consular assistance as against the other state of nationality. And that ambiguity, unfortunately, really dates from the 1930s, which was not a great period in terms of our understanding of nationality law. Unfortunately. Uh, and it's never really been corrected. And so this is, a, this is an area of, of considerable problem for Canada generally in terms of the travel patterns of, of its citizens, which is why sometimes you get these uh, notifications from the government about, you know, be, be wary if you travel in these regions. The last point I'll make here is that I, I've always been puzzled. So setting aside the issue of diplomatic representation, Iran is a party to the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. And the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations has an, uh, an optional protocol. And the optional protocol says, in the event that there's a dispute under this convention, the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction. Iran is a party to that. Mm -hmm. and that was another basis by which the United States was able to take Iran to the ICJ. We're not a party. 
And we've never decided to become a party, which is puzzling to me because we're likely to export more people in terms of their travel patterns. And, it, and we're more likely to be a complainant state than a state that receives a complaint. Uh, and so I, I've never quite understood why we haven't proceeded to become a party to the optional protocol so that we at least have a venue in which we can protest and bring cases in terms of the maltreatment of our nationals and would have a venue in which we could settle what the modern international law is in terms of diplomatic protection of dual nationals. So could the optional protocol to the Vienna Convention be the new Bill C-59 <laughs> for the purpose of the podcast? Well, I mean, I, 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 mean, I think we're more obscure there. Right. I, I'll, I'll note that the <laughs> Americans have been traditionally a party to the, this optional protocol, uh, but they, under John Bolton's stewardship, have withdrawn, <laughs> as well as having withdrawn from that Amity Treaty that we mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, the Amity Treaty is still in force uh, for a year because uh, it remains in force a uh, year after notification. But again, I, a puzzling decision by the Americans to withdraw from the optional protocol because Americans are much more likely to travel abroad than, say, Iranians are to travel abroad. And so if you are a country that has people traveling abroad and you're concerned about providing diplomatic protection to them, you're more likely to benefit from a rule that allows you to sue another state in the International Court of Justice. I'm not quite sure why the Americans made that decision. Well, speaking of not being sure why Americans made decisions, let's talk a little bit about the Iranian nuclear deal and maximum pressure. What have the Americans been doing while we've been trying to figure out what our relations with Iran should be? Since coming to power, I mean, you mentioned it already, Tama, the Trump has torn up the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is what we colloquially call the Iran nuclear deal, uh, and engaged in a strategy that they have, as I mentioned, called this maximum pressure. So what are the goals of these two moves, and are they working? I don't know and no, in, that, <laughs> in a nutshell. Uh, it's difficult to it's say. It's a shorter I'm, podcast I'm, than I thought. <laughs> I'm not sure how I could say they're not working if I don't know what the goals are, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident that they're not working. Uh, I'm saying that I don't know what the goals are because I don't think the Americans have clearly, as an administration, determined what the objective is. And, and keeping in mind that we should never put the bar too high in the sense that in, in difficult uh, crises like that, uh, you know, academics like to think that, that governments have very clear fixed objectives and that there's a piece of paper somewhere that everybody agrees to with objectives one, two, three, four. It's rarely as clear as that, but in this case, it really is not. What exactly does President Trump want out of Iran uh, is not completely clear. I do believe that he doesn't want a war. I think he's actually been consistent on that one. But what else he wants and doesn't want is not clear. Uh, but it is not the same as what Pompeo and Bolton want. Pompeo and Bolton clearly uh, favor a much more aggressive course of action towards Iran and, and are, I, I would say, far more willing to consider the use of force than, than Trump is. Right. They're, um, they're more advocates of regime change. Exactly. On its own, that is not so abnormal in the sense that pick any U.S. administration in the last few decades and you always have different power centers with different views on, on foreign policy or domestic uh, policy for that matter. Uh, the Obama administration was not different. You had people more willing to, to take an aggressive approach towards Iran than, than others. And that on its own is not abnormal. In this case, uh, it is it is quite dysfunctional. I mean, for now, the the common denominator is what you refer to as the maximum pressure campaign, which is a uh, withdraw from the JCPOA, uh, which the Americans call the JICPOA uh, in many <laughs> cases. And nobody else, I think, uh, actually says that, but it's just called the nuclear deal for, for to avoid making fun of them. They withdrew from that a bit uh, uh, over a year ago now. The other members of the nuclear deal, which is the three Europeans, uh, France, the UK and Germany, and then Russia and China, and the Iranians have agreed together. Now they meet as the P5, the P4 plus one. Uh, and Iran, as opposed to the P5 plus one, which included the US. And they tried to figure out ways to ensure the survival of the nuclear deal. So far, they've managed to do that, but not by much. And the future is really uncertain. The Americans' goal, as far as we can say, is by imposing maximum pressure on Iran, i.e. piling up sanctions and uh, threatening Iran, with the use of force at least, to try to extract more concessions. And, and you know, there seems to be some kind of an outline of a strategy that's emerging out of Washington that we are open to negotiations with Iran to come up with a better deal than the JCPOA. What does better deal mean? Not clear, but m probably A, more restrictions on Iran's nuclear program, but crucially, restrictions on other fields of Iranian activity. The nuclear deal was, as the name says, only a nuclear deal. It imposed restrictions on Iran's nuclear program. It didn't touch Iran's missile program. It didn't touch Iran's other foreign policy in the region, support for Assad, support for Hezbollah in Lebanon, opposition to Israel, and so on. The dream of Iran hawks in the U.S., Pompeo Bolton, after their favorite dream of regime change, their second favorite dream is to really impose massive change on 
Iran's foreign policy, curbing its missile program, curbing its quote-unquote nefarious activities throughout the region. Uh, so the, the theory of this is not completely implausible. The idea that you impose maximum pressure on a country, speaking hypothetically, to extract maximum concessions in exchange for relieving that or some of that pressure. The problem is, A, there is absolutely no process being put in place to actually make this happen. You can't just snap your fingers and say, okay, we're going to have a deal with the, with, between the Iran and the U.S. to resolve all of that. It would be extremely complicated negotiations. The JCPOA took three years mm -hmm. to happen. You simply don't have that momentum in the U.S., that process being put into place. Same thing on the Iranian side, of course. The other thing is, even if you had that process in place, is Iran willing to concede uh, at multiple other levels than its nuclear program Probably not much. A bit, sure, because it is under significant pressure. Iranian economic growth was minus 6% this year. When you've got uh, a very young population with a young labor force with a big youth bulge, minus 6% econo economic growth is extremely damaging. You need at least 5% per year to just to create enough jobs for all your youth. So you're 10% beneath that right now. Hugely problematic for Iran. So even if they don't say it, the Iranians are willing to negotiate at some point. That being said, to compromise on support for Hezbollah, support for Assad, support for other groups in the region, in Iraq, their missile program, they're not going to do that. They're just not going to do that. Okay, so just unpacking that a little bit, Craig, whether it's the P5 or P4, what is the status of the Iranian nuclear deal in international law? Does that actually constitute a treaty? Because I think one of the issues was... No. Right, no, <laughs> well, that's, again, shorter podcast than I thought. But uh, because I th believe the United States, uh, it, was an, it was an executive signature on mm -hmm. it. It wasn't actually a treaty that was passed by Congress. Yeah, so it's called a deal or a plan for a reason. Uh, of course, if if it were a formal treaty, it would require Senate approval, um, and that was extremely unlikely in the circumstances back in 2015, and more unlikely even now. So the it's not truly a, a treaty in the international sense. International law, not everything in writing exchanged between states is a treaty. It, it, uh, a, a treaty that's governed by another Vienna Convention, a lot of the treaties, uh, does have to be in writing, but it has to also manifest an intent to to create binding international relations, and that intent's not here. And so it's not, not in fact, a treaty, it's an understanding. Um, and so there's so not no really... So no could be said to be violating international law. No. no well, yeah, so, I mean, the international law issues really come in in terms of, for example, Security Council resolutions and what they require of Iran. Uh, and so that's where you start to get into binding legal obligations. Still, I mean, there's... So we would probably call the plan... We would probably call it a soft law, right? It's not legally binding. There is the credibility of the participants, which is engaged by the plan. And so one of the, Tom, I can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the discussions I saw when the Americans decided to pull out was that, well, who's going to believe the Americans now? If you're North Korea and you conclude some kind of agreement with the Americans uh, and there's a change in administration or a change in mood in the current administration, what good is the word of the United States? And so there's a sort of political science sort of discussion about the credibility of states that enter into these these instruments, whether they're legally binding or not. The sanctions issue is a little bit more complex, right? And so we've had this conversation on the podcast in the past that there, there certain sorts of sanctions are mandatory. So when the Security Council, acting under what's known as Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, obliges the imposition of sanctions, those are binding obligations on all state members of the UN. Uh, and so s Iran's been subject to at least, what, six different UN Security Council resolutions over the course of the last uh, 15 years or so, imposing sanctions in relation to the nuclear program. Uh, some of those expired, most of those expired, in fact, in, in the wake of the 2015 plan or agreement, because that was the quid pro quo, uh, there's not, therefore, the same robust UN mandatory legal sanction regime in place as there was in 2015. And so that means that while the Americans may unilaterally now, as an exercise of their own sovereignty, decide that they're going to impose sanctions in relation to the US economy and trade and investment and financial sanctions on Iran, there's not uh, a UN mandated obligation on the rest of the international community to do the same. Now, that upsets the current administration, and there's been a very active discussion now about the U.S. wielding its influence as the single most important market in the world to essentially coerce other states to participate in, in re-sanctioning Iran, and we get into a conversation about secondary sanctions, right? If you are dealing in Iran as a French company, we're going to now sanction you in some manner, uh, and we're back to a conversation we had in the past with the Americans in relation to, say, the Helms-Burton law that related to dealing in property in Cuba, which is, should we put in place blocking legislation which says 
you either comply with our law, which says you don't comply with the U.S. law, and if you don't comply with our law, our law, you go to jail, um, or you choose to, com- you know, you, or you comply with the American law, or and, and don't go to jail in the U.S. Right. So you're put on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, blocking legislation has that effect. There's also a, a, setting aside the legalities here. There's also a difficult business. Uh, case or decision that that these companies have to make in terms of, well, it may well be that uh, you have these legal obligations, but really do you want to get into the mix in terms of being caught between these uh, different states who are trying to impose different obligations on 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 you as an enterprise that might have dealings in Iran? Well, no, not really. So we're not going to deal with Iran. We're not compliant with the US sanctions per se. We just think it's a business decision. We're no longer going to have any dealings with Iran, right? So it's the sanctions issue is extremely complex. And uh, frankly, the American action here may actually induce the Europeans and others to come up with sanctions avoidance mechanisms that they wouldn't otherwise be incentivized to create, including trying to minimize dealings in U.S. dollars, which may have impacts in the long term for the American economy. I don't know, Tom, if you agree with that or... I, mean, I think there there are a lot of really important and interesting points, and and the the last one I think is is an important one, and and one of the you know there are many reasons to criticize what the Americans have been doing recently, but one of them is, you know, is the U.S. abusing the use of the tool of financial sanctions, and and it is a tool that is extremely effective and that can be excessively damaging to adversaries, uh, Iran being the case in point now, but there have been other cases. But if you abuse of that tool, are you encouraging non-enemies, whether friends like the Europeans or, you know, semi-adversaries, to diversify away from the U.S. dollar, to disentangle themselves from the U.S. financial system, uh, which in the long term uh, would be damaging to U.S. power, because when we think of U.S. power, of course, we think of U.S. military power, U.S. economic power, but there's U.S. financial power at the center of that. And what really allows the U.S. to seriously hurt countries like Iran is that the U.S. financial system, uh, U.S. clearinghouses, U.S. banks, the use of the American dollar is everywhere. Nobody can avoid it easily, at least. But Right now, especially the Trump administration has been multiplying the use of financial sanctions, and that's incentivizing uh, not only the Europeans, but the Russians and the Chinese, for example, to to steadily disentangle themselves. And 20 years from now, if that trend continues, that hurts the U.S. So all of this provides the background to what's been happening in the last couple of months and and weeks, particularly the Strait of Hormuz and oil tankers. As I'm sitting here, I just got a push notification that Iran has seized a British-flagged oil tanker. So British. British flagged? British flagged. So that's bad. (laughs) That's my analysis and contribution to this podcast. But basically, there's there's been several of these incidents going forward. Earlier this week, there was an incident where the U.S. apparently used some kind of electronic interference weapon to uh, basically uh, crash an Iranian drone. There's been other oil ships that have either been attacked or allegedly seized. So what are we seeing happening in that region right now. Yeah, yeah there was also a, an American drone that was downed by the Iranians, the Iranians say in, in Iranian airspace, the Americans say in international airspace back at the end of June. My bottom line assessment, which I have had since basically 2006, when tensions uh, around Iran's nuclear program and more broadly U.S.-Iran relations spiked under the, the, the Bush administration, if you remember, right, there were a lot of rumors that the U.S. and or Israel would attack Iran back then. That has ebbed and flowed since then, but basically what we're seeing now is a serious rise in those tensions, but the same pattern that we've been seeing for multiple years. My assessment since back then, uh, and I was working at at National Defense back then, and and I I studied that issue quite a bit uh, in, in, in that context, is there will not be a war. I have never believed that the U.S. was likely to attack Iran. Um, There were a few points where I started feeling shaky in my assessment because of Israel, uh, which did come relatively close, though there was always at least to a large extent, if not to a full extent, a bluff element on on Israel's part to manipulate the threat of an attack to pressure Iran, which the U.S. did find relatively convenient, right, as part of some kind of a good cop, bad cop routine, or bad cop and worse cop more (laughs) than good cop, bad cop. And... More recently, those tensions have spiked. That being said, on the American side, I am convinced that of the few things that Trump has been consistent uh, on over his political career is not wanting to engage in a war in the Middle East. At the same time, in the U.S., you have some in the civilian leadership, Bolton, Pompeo, uh, who are very hawkish on Iran and who probably really want uh, to seriously consider an attack on Iran. 
among the biggest opponents, and this is not negligible as a factor of, of war with Iran, is the Pentagon uh, on the military side. They are not doves. Uh, you speak to American military officers and they view Iran as a serious strategic threat in the Middle East, but they understand that the consequences of, of a strike are uh, beyond their control, that s things could very easily escalate and become very costly for the U.S., and, and those costs would massively exceed the benefits. Um, on the Iranian side, they are not stupid. Uh, they are not apocalyptic mullahs that are irrational and waiting for the last judgment, blah, 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 in a messianic cult. That is simply inaccurate. Uh, they are very rational. They are extremely good at calibrating their, their provocations. I like to call it salami tactics to see how much they can play with the red lines that the Americans tried to impose without clearly crossing this red line to to stimulate or to provoke an attack because in terms of conventional military power, the Iranians would get absolutely trounced by the Americans. They simply do not have the power to match the Americans. Uh, so the, the Americans don't want a war. The Iranians don't want a war. Does that guarantee that we're not going to get one? No, because there's always the scenario of an unwanted escalation where a spark a drone being shot down by either side, a cyber attack, an unwanted clash in the, in the, in the Persian Gulf where things are very tight. That could trigger an, an escalatory spiral that nobody would want. That is absolutely possible. I don't think it's highly likely, but it is possible. So that's kind of the dynamics where we're at now. But because the Iranians are confident that Trump does not want a war, and they were reinforced in that view when after the drone, uh, the American drone being shot down that Craig just mentioned, Trump called off allegedly an attack. I don't think he called it off. I think he didn't want to have it from the beginning. Calling it off was a bit of showmanship on his part, I think. That reinforced the Iranians in their view that they can actually play with that red line even more because the Americans are not going to attack. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they have to be careful, but... That being said, when you've got incidents with tankers uh, in the UAE being bombed, there were a couple of those. Uh, a tanker uh, with Iranian oil allegedly on its way to Syria was seized by the British off of Gibraltar not too long ago. So is this retaliatory then, perhaps? It probably is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean that because that's that's an interesting question. I mean, recently we we saw I think was it this week that there's talk now of the U.S. sending troops back to Saudi Arabia largely because of the Iran situation. So this seems there does seem to be more of a military buildup because it, it was always my understanding the U.S. had been trying to get out of Saudi Arabia for years and now suddenly is going back in. Yeah, these reports are, are a bit uncertain, so not it's not clear exactly what is going on, but the U.S. withdrew its its last formal military installation from Saudi Arabia after 9-11, a few a bit after 9-11, when politically inside Saudi Arabia, it was toxic. And that's why uh, the U.S. really moved its bases, which, which was convenient for the U.S. because it was much more politically manageable to do in the UAE, in Qatar, in Kuwait, in Bahrain, uh, and in Oman, for that matter, in every Gulf country except for Saudi Arabia on, on, the, on the Arab side of the Gulf. The, the announcement of, of perhaps 500 more troops to Saudi Arabia, if confirmed, if true, and let, let's wait for that, is part of, of American efforts to try to deter Iran, right? So is it a, a, an indication that we're on the way to war? No, it's not, uh, because 500 troops are not what would make a significant difference to U.S. capabilities to actually strike Iran. It's more of a, a political message to Iran that we, the U.S., have Saudi Arabia's back and a, a signal to Saudi Arabia that we have your back. So it's, it's much more of a political than a, a military thing. And the other aspect, just based on what you, you just said, whether or not there's this back-channel diplomacy happening, I believe uh, the Japanese prime minister has kind of been going back and forth between various parties. Uh, I'm not sure why they chose the Japanese uh, prime minister other than the fact that perhaps they actually import Iranian oil. Um, but the fact is there does seem to be some efforts by at least some of the administration to get some kind of conversation going. But whether or not that's being undermined by other elements of yeah. administration, is, it really is quite Byzantine. Well, I mean, now it's kind of a cool thing to try to position yourself as a mediator between the U.S. and Iran, and everybody and their mother is basically trying to do that. The, really? Because that would be the last place I would want to be, but <laughs> maybe that's just You know, the, the Japanese tried, the Omanis do it all the time, though right. they tend to be uh, much more s discreet about it and therefore more effective. The Swiss have offered to do it and have done it. The Iraqis have been quite vocal in their offer. In the case of the Iraqis, you can clearly see why, because few countries are more caught in the middle. Uh, between any U.S.-Iran conflict and Iraq. Other European countries, the French, in their own way, have also uh, tried to play some kind of role. The French, obviously, a bit particular because they traditionally take a very hard line on Iran. They were kind of the bad cop in the P5 plus one for, for a good while. But their main diplomatic advisor to the president has been in Iran a lot in recent weeks. 
the Japanese case was interesting. The Japan, there was probably some domestic politics involved on, on the Japan, Japanese side. Uh, as you said, uh, Japan imports a lot of Iranian oil, so they have a clear interest in, in stability in the Persian Gulf. There is no public indication that that attempt by the Japanese had any kind of success. Public media reports say that basically the supreme leader of Iran uh, rebuffed uh, the Japanese prime minister's attempts uh, offer of mediation. The fact that the Japanese prime minister got to meet the supreme leader of Iran is not insignificant. Few foreign dignitaries meet him, especially non-Muslim ones. It does happen, but it's rare. Uh, so it does suggest that there may have been some opening, but publicly at least the Iranians basically sent them off. So, you know, we're getting to the end of the podcast here, and there's so much that we could really talk about. And Craig, I'm sure we'll be talking more about the legal issues as, as the situation develops in the future. Um, but, you know, if I was to, to ask both of you, what would be your policy recommendations? And Craig, what would be your legal recommendations? And is there a role for Canada here in all of this? Well, let, let me just jump in on the legal side and be very quick. So, Obviously, Canada has a difficulty now in terms of the sanctions regime, right? So we're not actually member of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, but we supported it. So what do we do in terms of this new conundrum around U.S. financial sanctions and the like? I don't know that we've got a big footprint economically in Iran, so it probably doesn't affect us and our companies directly. Still, from a foreign policy perspective, we can't be happy about the the dismantlement, essentially, of the plan of action because there's not really an alternative in place. So from a foreign policy perspective, we don't benefit from a nuclearized Iran any more than anyone else. Are we moving closer to that because there's no longer a plan of action? The Iranians have increased some of the Iranian enrichment activities, right? So it, like the, the whole nuclear non-proliferation posture is much more complicated for us. Uh, on the on the legal side that involves the use of force, right? So you just mentioned that a British flag vessel was seized. We saw a drone that was down, possibly two drones. We're not really at a clear uh, situation of armed attack that would justify, say, a, a U.S. or, in this case, a British military response. And this probably goes to your idea of salami slicing. Uh, the, each of these incidents, the facts are sometimes disputed, but the bottom line is that in sort of a widespread view about what constitutes an armed attack that justifies self-defense – we've probably not crossed the threshold yet. It's disputable, for example, that a use of force against a flagged vessel of your state amounts to an armed attack that would justify self-defense. Some people say yes, some people say no. If it's a civilian vessel, it's very complicated, right? If military vessel is a bit different. Uh, the drone that was, the American drone that was downed, was it downed in Iranian airspace? That's what the Iranians say. You got sovereign control over your airspace. Was it down in international waters. Well, it's more problematic if force was used there, but even if it was for Iranian force against a drone in international waters, downing uh, a drone is probably not itself an armed attack that would justify self-defense. And so the American actions, which were called off or didn't go through, that you described a moment ago, Tama, would have been very, very difficult to justify as a matter of public international law, which wouldn't necessarily forestall their being used, but it would make it very difficult to persuade much of the international community to go along, right? And so... The salami slicing tactics I think we may be seeing in terms of the degree of force that's being used in the region, at least so far, this will be posted in a couple of weeks. We'll see what happens in terms <laughs> of whether it'll stalemate. Right. Thomas? I mean, I'll, I'll make three quick points uh, to, to finish on that. A, uh, is there a role for Canada in the U.S.-Iran dispute right now? No. Uh, like That's I said easy. a few minutes ago, it's a very <laughs> it's a very crowded field of of people trying to mediate uh, between the U.S. and Iran, and that doesn't doesn't even include what are certainly a number of real or proposed back channels that we don't know of. Uh, so I I just don't see scope for Canada right now. We like to think as Canadians that we're mediators and so on, but you know maybe that could be a topic for another podcast with somebody else. But when was the last time that Canada actually mediated between rival countries? You have to actually go back pretty far. Right now in the U.S.-Iran dynamics, there's no scope for Canada to do that. Point number two, is there scope for change in Canada-Iran relations uh, in the short term, especially with elections coming? I don't think so. A, if the conservatives win, they are clearly not going to make efforts to re-engage with Iran because they're happy with the status quo. If the liberals win, are they likely to try to reinitiate their re-engagement efforts who knows? Things could change. But the last year, year and a half showed that these re-engagement efforts were not promising in terms of their potential to succeed, and they were costly. So unless something significantly changed, I don't see the liberals really making significant effort to try to relaunch those re-engagement efforts. And then my third point, my last point is, who cares? 
basically, does this matter that we have not been able to reopen an embassy in Iran and Iran here? The, the broad answer to that is not that much in the sense that Canada-Iran relations, and you, Craig, briefly alluded to that a few minutes ago, Canada-Iran relations are not very important. We've never had important commercial relations with Iran. We've never had important political relations with Iran. Uh, this is not a priority for any Canadian government, left-wing or right-wing or centrist or whatever. So is there an actual cost to us as a country of not having been able to re-establish embassies? At most, a small one. So it's it's not the end of the world. It's an interesting question. It, it has important implications, but it's not a big deal. There are not a lot of lost trade opportunities for Canadian businesses, especially because Iran remains sanctioned. Even if sanctions are lifted at some point in Iran, Canadian businesses are going to be so far behind European and Asian businesses in terms of establishing a foothold in Iran. We have no business intelligence in Iran, no contacts, and so on. So the potential is there, but it's not a big one. Politically, it would be useful for us to have an embassy in Iran. It's a big country. It's an important country in terms of providing consular services to the two-ish hundred thousand Iranian Canadians, it would be very useful. And then the last point I'll make is uh, maybe one of the most interesting and useful niches for us to have an embassy in Iran is to have eyes and ears for the U.S., when we had an embassy in Iran until 2012, Canadian diplomats posted in Iran would regularly go to Washington when they would come back to Ottawa to go and brief their American, their American colleagues because the U.S. does not have that permanent foothold in Iran. That was very much appreciated in Washington. And, you know, for Canada, getting any kind of traction in Washington is always difficult. And uh, that was one of those niches where we could get attention in Washington. Uh, reports written by Canadian diplomats in, in Iran would be sent to Washington in many cases. And that was appreciated. There was a currency there uh, that we could monetize in our relations with the U.S. that we don't have now. Uh, and that in its, uh, on its own is unfortunate. Well, speaking of costs, I know that this has uh, costed you some time. So thanks for speaking yeah. with us once again. Craig, I mean, you're always stuck with me, but uh, I appreciate your legal insights. I learned quite a bit actually in the last uh, uh, hour or so. So thank you so much. And um, I'm sure we'll be back soon with uh, more fabulous episodes of a podcast called Intrepid. Yes. And, and in fact, this will be the last of our official podcasts for season two. And so people will be able to catch up. And then we'll be back in September, and we have some plans in September, Stephanie, that we're not ready to go live with the plans yet, but uh, we have some plans for what we hope to do with this creature we've created, this podcast, um, but uh, something to look forward to for September. So thanks very much to all of you out there who have listened to us over the course of now two seasons or have joined us from, for occasional podcasts. Uh, we very much appreciate it, and we wish you the best for August. See you in September.